welcome to another episode of the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and this is another exciting Q&A with Dr. Mike Isratel. Um, how are you doing, Mike? How's it going? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I think we're both, we both just said we uh, have run a five-week accumulation period, and now we're both deloading, so... Um, I feel like you might be even more wrecked than me considering how much more advanced you are, but um, I've kind of come down with a bit of a cold and struggling to sleep. Tis the season. Everyone around me is sick, so I'm trying not to get sick this week, and we'll see if it works. Yeah, overreaching in this time of year, I guess, is a bad combination for kind of, yeah, immunosuppression and cold. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll dive straight into the questions, guys, um, because we love the questions. Um, and actually, the first one is coming from Pascal, the other coach of Revive Stronger. And this is to do with kind of um, glucose disposal rates and um, glucose monitoring and kind of the, the utility of measuring your blood glucose levels fairly regularly, maybe on a daily basis, and whether as a coach or as a trainee, that should be something you should be monitoring with your athletes or with yourself, and um, or if it's just something that maybe is another area of data that maybe could be useful, but might just be minutia that could confuse things. Um, so yeah, just have you, is it something you've ever used yourself, Mike, I guess you might, um, or anything you've used with athletes before or clients? Yeah, it's a very good question. So um, I would say there's a very clear, very pretty good reason to use this sort of uh, instrument on occasion with athletes that are enhanced. Um, So if you're taking special sports supplements, particularly growth hormone and very particularly insulin, then you need kind of two big pieces of data. Um, growth hormone tends to make you more insulin resistant over time, which tends to raise your blood sugar after meals and fasted. And uh, eventually that sort of raising becomes both, you know, counterproductive to muscle growth and also very, very counterproductive to your health. So uh, occasional blood glucose monitoring when taking growth hormone, especially in super pharmacological doses is not a terrible idea. And as soon as you become sort of, uh, you know, a little bit insulin resistant, then you can sort of back off of the, uh, growth hormone use and or um, usually it's not even the growth hormone use that is what's changed is that you back off of the mass gaining diet and start to get into a little bit of a mini cut situation or even a, a longer cut to make sure that everything is stabilized. So with insulin, you want to potentially monitor your blood glucose because um, you know the reason you're using insulin is to shuttle glucose into the blood. Um, and you have kind of a two-factor measurement uh, situation there where if you are using insulin and you are not using enough of it, then your blood glucose will continue to remain higher than you would want it to post-meal. So let's say you inject insulin, you have a meal of you know higher carbohydrates and protein, the usual, let's say post-training, and then you measure your blood glucose you know, an hour or something later, and it's actually still pretty high. And you're like, okay, clearly I'm just not taking enough insulin because insulin drives glucose into the, into the muscles, away from the blood, and it wouldn't be this high if I was using the appropriate dose. On the other hand, and much more dangerous, is very, very, very large drops in blood glucose from insulin. They're potentially deadly because you can just go hyperglycemic and pass out and seizure, die, etc. So, you know, when you're titrating your insulin dose and you are starting it always start at a very low end, 
And if you're moving up in the dosages and your blood glucose starts to be very low after meals, then either you need to consume more carbohydrate or use less insulin or some combination of both. So that being said, um, for natural athletes, um, the, the biggest effector of insulin of, of, of uh, insulin sensitivity and thus blood sugar is your body fat level and your body weight, uh, mostly body fat level percentage. You know, if you're really fat and you're underactive especially, then your um, resting blood glucose and blood glucose response to meals is going to be higher. If you are very lean and or train a ton, um, then your blood glucose is going to be chronically low. Uh, genetics play a big role in this. Like I kind of, at any given moment you find me, my blood glucose is like 70, <laughs> which is really low. Um, so if I don't eat uh, carbohydrates, like I skip a meal by an hour sometimes, especially if I'm training very hard during those times, I'm just going to start to pass out and I have to have carbohydrates. It's just genetics. Some people just have a higher resting blood glucose genetically and then you kind of work from there. Um, and the thing is, is that, you know, people say, you know, blood glucose monitoring should be done with natural athletes. You, you look at, you have to have a whole kit. You have to poke yourself and draw blood. Um, and, and then what is it that you're doing with that data? It's one of those situations. So Dr. James Hoffman and I every now and again, like to go on this rant and this rant was kind of, uh, it's, it's one of Dr. Hoffman's babies. It's his, uh, his child of a rant and he's really good at it, but I'll try to try to paraphrase it. You know, coaches get into a situation, and it's a good situation, where they have these technologies around them, and they're tempted to make uses for technologies. I'm actually going to be posting on Facebook a little later. By the time this airs, it's almost certainly going to be already posted, that uh, sometimes there's a supply looking for a demand instead of the other way around. Like, we've got this thing. Who can use it? So, like, for example, blood glucose monitoring, people are like, oh, we can monitor blood glucose. How do we do it? It's like, okay. What is blood glucose monitoring telling you that other measurements that are even more relevant won't? So for example, if you are a little bit over fat, you've been massing for a little bit too long, and your blood glucose is starting to get pretty high, the answer is start mini cutting or go to switch to maintenance and then start a full cut, lower your body fat, and almost certainly your blood glucose is going to go down. We probably could have told you that just from how you look at your normal parameters. Let's say you normally skin fold yourself or you look in the mirror and you look at your ab shape and how much definition there is. And you say, okay, well, you know, I'm looking like I'm pushing about 15, 16% here. Time to back it down. And um, if you poked yourself with glucose, it would probably only confirm what you already know. Um, and, and it's one of those things like, let's say you have genetics to be very insulin sensitive. Like I'm one of these people, uh, thank you, you know, for the genetics, but I probably be insulin sensitive well into my, or, you know, low twenties in body fat. Does that mean I should mass into my low twenties? No, cause it's just going to take forever to cut that fat off. I'm insulin sensitive the entire time, just getting fatter. So it's just, you got to make the cutoff at 50 to 60% anyway, it's probably a good idea to just drop it. Um, so, so when you get into the pharmacological side of things, every now and again, blood glucose monitoring is a good idea. Um, for naturals, I, I would say this, um, probably just good to have every half year or four, three times a year to go get a regular physical, which is a good idea for everyone. One of the things you're going to be measuring is called your HbA1c, uh, glycosylated hemoglobin. That is uh, basically your hemoglobin um, 
uh, essentially, there's a part a piece sort of a, for a colloquial interpretation is there's kind of pieces of carbohydrate stuck onto it every now and again, and they add up. It's like snow. It's like snow slowly covering like a, a road bank or something like that. And if you and let's say the snow never melts, and uh, how much snow did you have over the winter? You're going to be able to estimate pretty well based on how how high the snow is over the road. Like if it's there's a, a meter of snow, and then you actually hit the road, clearly it snowed a lot that winter. If there's only like five centimeters, clearly it just didn't snow much. So uh, HbA1c gives you basically a three-month history of average blood glucose levels, and they can actually do the math and tell you what that average is. So um, you know basically. Uh, if you get every three, every four months or every six months your HbA1c done, you don't have to poke yourself all the time, and you know your history, and it's long enough for it to really matter. You know, so you do a whole mass phase, and you realize that your HbA1c is a bit high, and you go, okay, whatever I was doing during this mass phase, either I started out with too high a body fat, or I was too aggressive, or uh, I was underactive, or whatever, whatever, whatever. So next time, you maybe start at a lower body fat, you maybe don't go as high of a body fat, you gain less total weight, maybe you add in a little bit of cardio during your massing, then you check your A1c again. If the A1c thing is cool, because it's a three-month window, it also offers a real good experiment to see what's going on. Let me, let me put you this way. If you poke yourself with blood glucose uh, measurement device, you know, a lot of times like a stress response causes a rise in blood glucose. Sometimes it causes a fall depending on where you measure it. What kind of foods you ate just before, how your digestion is going, all the stuff can have a change. So in order to get good data from blood glucose measurements, you need a bunch of them. And now you're just poking yourself all the time. Why not wait a little bit, get an A1C done, and it'll give you the landscape really well. The good news is for drug-free bodybuilders um, who are not over fat, they're not really risking diabetes or any of this kind of stuff. There's not really any health concerns. It's optimization, but that optimization can be done just about as well through just visual inspections. And that and a combination of A1C uh, done every couple times a year. And uh, the test is super cheap. Even if you live in a country in which, like, because if you have socialized medicine, you can't exactly just schedule a physical when you want because they put you on a wait list. You can do it through a private company. The A1C test is like super duper cheap. They get, you get your blood, they send it off to a lab, it comes back the next day. It's just one of the most routinely done tests in all of medicine. It's not like, it's way easier than like, getting your testosterone and stuff done. It's just one of the easiest tests around. Because, you know, they don't normally test people for testosterone, but they test every single person that comes into the hospital for blood work almost every single time they do A1C uh, because type 2 diabetes is so prevalent, right? So it's one of the situations where I think that not all of the time, but much of the time, trying to monitor blood glucose in drug-free individuals is really kind of a solution looking for a problem. That would be my, uh, my summary of what's going on. What do you think no, about that? Really interesting. Um, I think part of your rant was part of something I had recently spoken to Pascal about and as coaches um, and the rant came from is we were kind of discussing, I was saying, I saw people were monitoring blood glucose, um, sometimes we feel like as coaches is you're providing your clients with the services. Sometimes you feel like you should be providing them more or you want to do more. And you think from what you provided there, it sounds very much like, right. It's probably better to get a DEXA scan a, a few times a year rather than maybe trying to spend a ton of money monitoring via DEXA scan, like every week to assess body fat levels or something like that. And rather every week use how you're looking visually or something along those lines rather um, sounds very similar to that. So no, great explanation there. Yeah, I think a lot of individuals get into this kind of way of thinking that 
What separates them from people who are getting really phenomenal results is this minutia in this like systematic, super crazy, super interventional approach. And the, the reality is that most of what separates them and the people who are getting amazing results is genetics. And oftentimes just time spent lifting and eating and dedication. So all of these little minutia are just not going to revolutionize. And some people go in search of these sort of endlessly, um, endlessly complicated situations and, and fixes and solutions in order to try to get these big effects. And they're almost always going to be disappointed. Um, I've actually seen people go coach to coach to coach. Um, and a lot of times these are the people, not always, of course, but sometimes these are the people that ask these questions you know, when a Q&A comes up on Facebook or something, they'll be like, what do you think of super advanced monitoring method A, B, and C? And you're like, man, don't you like quit lifting for a couple of months every year? They're like, yeah, you know, family stuff. And you're like, man, it's just not, I don't know. You don't live at a Bulgarian training center. It's going to be, there's going to be no point for you, you know, to, to need this. So it's one of those situations where, you know, uh, unless you have everything else dialed in and unless there is a demonstrated need you want to find something out that you can't, then there's a break. So for example, here's, here's a good use of glucose monitoring. Let's say that you are using insulin and growth hormone, and you are looking to take the optimal amount of insulin to dispose of your glucose and to make you just slightly hypoglycemic uh, so that you can really just shuttle everything into the muscle. In, or in the first week of determining your, your insulin dosages, you can poke yourself after every meal get a good baseline going and up and lower, lower and raise your insulin to make sure that you're doing a good job. But that's it. And then after a week, you don't have to do that for another month. And then you only take insulin for one or two months at a time. And the next time you go around, you do the same kind of in, get in the week, see how your insulin sensitivity is, adjust your insulin dosages and your growth hormone and your carbs uh, and, and then go from there. So, um, you know, but what naturals and, and again, sorry to harp on the same theme, but you know, a lot of times naturals, see these um, you know, equi uh, enhanced guys using a lot of these technologies because they need them. And they think, they want, they think I want to use cool technologies too. And like, it seem like I'm one of the, you know, the, the, the guys here. And uh, it's just, it's like a way of just pretending you fit in. Like there's, um, you know, the whole like pulling up your, like, like raising your arms up like this before you pull sumo, like raising them into the oh, sky. Yeah. Yeah. The reason people do that in, is because it, it, it folds your um, straps for your suit back in towards your shoulder so they don't fall off <laughs> during the pull. There's, there's a reason that started. Now people do it because, because, they, because their heroes did it in equipment and they just do it just to copy it. But it just looks fucking ridiculous, right? Um, it's like the cargo cults in the Pacific where the, the natives would build uh, mock uh, – what's that called mock uh, uh, airport towers out of like planks because they thought if you build an airport tower then airplanes with food will come in but that's nonsense it's a non-functional entity right so a lot of times like in equipped powerlifting this was the case where people would be like i want to use bands and chains for raw and the answer is there's really no point in doing that for raw. but but i, but I want to use cool stuff you know so you see like natural prep coaches will be like just making a fine-tune adjustments last minute adjustments like let me tell you what last minute adjustments are. Last minute adjustments is when you look at your athlete and you find out how full they are versus how dry they are. And you titrate their carbs, insulin, and diuretics every hour to, to get them that, that bit of crispness and fullness. If you're a drug-free coach, what the fuck are you manipulating? All the manipulations take five hours. Like, you know, you can manipulate the day before, but like, if it's like a couple hours in, like just making the final, what final tweaks, the fuck are you talking about? Like you're a little fucking, like, you know, a little fucking puppeteer, like you're not a puppet master. 
So the good thing is it makes, it makes drug-free sport much simpler. Uh, just put in the work and you're good to go. And if you're in shape, don't, don't fuck it up and you'll be fine. That's why guys like Lane Norton can say that, you know, they don't believe in peaking strategies and they still prep athletes pretty well. You know, like his guys do really well. Um, do I agree with him? Not really, but I think he's largely correct that you there's not much to peaking for naturals. Can you say the same thing for drug people? Oh my God. All the, as soon as Lane Norton said that and, you know, various clients who are on drugs ask their prep coaches if he's right. They're like, Jesus Christ, of course he's not right. For drugs, are you serious? There's like 50 different things to do. And you can fuck things up a whole lot because there's so many different variables. But just because those, those variables are there, just because we have the monitoring tools, doesn't mean we just have to use them. We have to find out if there's a purpose. And for something like monitoring your blood glucose, there are times and places, and they're very rare, few, very few and far between, especially for natural athletes. No, I think uh, that was an amazing run. I mean, I think as someone who is natural and like you look at these, I mean, for peaking, for example, like I definitely noticed benefit from doing various strategies, but I also tried less assertive, less fancy methods and they worked pretty damn well as well. And whilst being natural is boring, and actually I remember in a previous podcast, or maybe it was a consult with Broderick, he talked about how he just doesn't find natural athletes exciting. Um, It's kind of like comparing working with a Ferrari versus working with something like a Toyota or something very boring and basic that there's not much you can do. And when you make changes, yeah, you you can't make things happen fast. So um, I think sometimes we do... As natural athletes, we're always, because things are slow, a bit unexciting, we look outwards towards maybe supplements or various methods and things that seem like they're helping um, other people get more better results. But for us, it's just more of the basics over and over again. Um, And if kind of looking at the minutia stops us hitting and nailing our basics, then it's absolutely not helping. Um, I think that's something that people can struggle with. Yeah, and I also think natural athletes tend to be, on average, a bit more intellectual about their pursuit than uh, than enhanced athletes. Mostly because I think the kind of person that usually, not always, but usually goes enhanced um, is there. Uh, it just has to be a little bit reckless um, and a little bit uh, more kind of like let's just try shit, you know? Yeah. Um, so natural athletes tend to be tend to be in this conundrum of they want to organize a lot of training variables with a lot of precision to get very minute outcomes, but simultaneously are are in a position where none of that organization matters much. Um, So, you know, when you have dedicated naturals that are intellectual that switch to taking drugs, usually really good things happen because they're very, very meticulous about that approach. Um, But uh, so it's, it's kind of like a little bit of conundrum and there's some, there's some sort of philosophical, maybe not contradiction, but a little bit of philosophical incongruity there when uh, individuals that are natural, usually really big fans of science, really big fans of using the tools of science to help. Uh, and then you kind of ask them, well, so why aren't you using drugs? And they'll be like, well, and it's not natural. And you're like, I thought you don't big fan of natural things. And they're like, well, and they'll usually say like it's cheating. And then usually they haven't thought that through. And then if you say, well, it's not cheating, if you're not competing against people who are in a drug test federation, they say, you know, I don't want to break the law. And that's a very, very good reason not to do something. So I have to respect that. But um, at some point, it's kind of like, you know, naturals are the kind of people looking to make these micro enhancements, but they just happen to be in the wrong game for it. Uh, Although I will tell you that there are a lot of drug guys who go around and and get decent results because they take a shitload of drugs. 
And then when they finally get a good prep coach that is the kind of thinker that most naturals are, and they do fine tune it, it just amplifies the results like crazy. Uh, and it's like, what the hell happened? Well, I started, my coach got me thinking for the first time about this stuff. And that's when it really pays off. But, and, and, and don't take this the wrong way. It pays off to think about drug-free stuff. There's lots to think about, but these little tiny minutia, especially with blood sugar regulation and stuff, it's, it's just, you, you got the info, but it's just not much to do about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, the same way with, well, from what I gather, in terms of supplementation for a natural athlete, there's, again, not a great deal to, to, to really bark on about, but for someone who's advanced, when there is so many more things going on, it's like that Ferrari, you need so many more tools to keep it running most effectively. Totally. That's a very good another Ferrari is very good because it's also riskier, right? You know, when a Toyota crashes, it just is not going very fast. Uh, when a Ferrari crashes, shit blows up. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't put the right fuel into a Ferrari, it doesn't work very well. There's a really big difference there. You know, you talk about like a, a lot of times bodybuilders, there's like huge debate about eating clean versus IFYM back in the day. And a lot of the drug guys were like, you got to eat clean. Well, that's because if you try to IFYM with a lot of drugs, you're going to take in too much salt and your blood pressure is going to go through the fucking roof. You're going to gain like 10 pounds of water the next day. And you're like, fuck this IFYM bullshit. This is stupid. Um, and there's ways to IFYM keeping that concern. But, you know, if you IFYM, but you restrict your food to a certain extent that in some way that modulates well with the drugs at some point you are already clean eating you're just rotating a couple of real basic foods because you can't have cheat meals all the time because it'll just bloat you into a ridiculous mess so it's one of those situations where there's like more that can go right with a ferrari and there's more that can go wrong um i will say that driving a ferrari recklessly is a really really bad idea so if you're thinking about getting into the dark side you better be have your thinking cap on can do a lot of damage and uh there have been people that just died this year probably from misusing supplements and Mm -hmm. it's not a joke so a lot of people you know get it you know one thing that always baffled the fuck out of me was a cavalier approach to drug use i just just never understood it like so you putting a needle and putting stuff in your body and you barely know what the stuff is uh, and they're like, people, people like run like cycles be like, well, here's what I have on hand currently. Like what? you just run some shit you came across. It's like making a meal based on randomly picking up items yeah. at the grocery store. Like it just baffles me, but, uh, those people end up paying for it. And then they're like, you know, it's funny because people say like, well, you know, there's not like people dropping dead and the guys that are using, I know guys that are using Cavalier methods for steroids and stuff and they're like fine yeah they're fine now but they're not fine later and i've met a lot of older lifters will tell you straight to your face don't fucking be an idiot i got to the hospital three times back when i was your age my kidneys are permanently fucked now all these horror stories they just don't hear about them anymore because they're not competing they're not in the limelight anymore um it's one of those things that i i uh, another way i can see this is cheat lifting like um you know there's uh, people that are like you know, doing all uh, recommending, you know, like shrugging with like a really poor technique and all this other shit, like just cheat curling, even though they're never hurt then, but like five years later, they're in pieces. You just don't hear about them anymore because they already, you know, left the sport or something like that. So a lot of times it's one of those things where you won't even see it. Your, your recklessness with a Ferrari, you won't see it during a certain time. Uh, and, 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 and the thing is there's this, this reporting bias uh, when a lifter, is on and doing great you hear about them all the time but when a lifter is not on and not doing great they just don't say anything about it so you just assume it never happens like for example i hurt my quad uh pretty bad um earlier this year and 
And I really didn't tell anybody about it in public. Nobody knew about it. And I didn't post live training videos, if anyone noticed. I didn't post live training videos for like three months. And then I started posting them again. Nobody asked me where they were. They just thought I just wasn't posting videos. Right? So, so you know, if I was training really stupid and that's how the quad injury happened, you could have just never known about yeah. that. No one could have ever learned about it. So we got to be really, really careful about concluding, like, well, what's his name doing? And he's fine. We'll see about him in three years. And if he's not around in three years, why? We well, should tore himself into fucking pieces. Or we, you, we may never find out because he's never going to talk about it. So if you got a Ferrari, treat it well, because even if you don't crash in front of a bunch of people, you crash in a test track somewhere and you just never return to racing, uh, it, people who are less than, less than thoughtful won't, won't learn a goddamn thing. And I guess in a bit of a roundabout way, well, that's something I've thought about is you have to be really careful about who you're selecting your information from, which we should always. Um, but I guess for a natural athlete, I think quite often, and especially younger guys who don't know any better and they don't really differentiate and they're not sure who's on, who's off. And there could be some guys who are on um, various things and they're doing all these different things and, whether or not they should really take their information from that person or take advice and they'd be better off seeking someone slightly more appropriate to them. That's a huge thing. The problem is, is that a lot of times the people that make us the most passionate and stuff are the people that we probably shouldn't be taking advice from. I think there's a very big difference between taking inspiration from someone and taking advice from them. You know, I take a lot of inspiration from the Rocky movies about boxing, uh, but I don't take any training advice from those movies. Yeah. Because uh, training is just fucking completely rock stupid. And um, there is, what's it called? Um, you know, there's a lot of lifters that have their hearts in the right place. Um, and they train really hard, but they do a lot of things that are not particularly thought through. Um, the thing is, you don't, a lot of these lifters in their 20s do dumb shit. And they get a lot of fans. And in the 30s, they'll have their own little mini renaissance where they'll discover how some of the dumb shit in their 20s got them hurt or was bad. So they'll start training more intelligently. But they'll take people along for the ride through their 20s that will burn out, get hurt, and never come back again or just permanently fuck up their, their attempts at gaining muscle and, and being strong and all this stuff. So what ends up happening on the net balance is you just don't want to be that person that listened to that guy before they came to wisdom. You know, like that sucks. And, uh, you know, but, but people love to fanboy and, and people love to, to think that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between greatness and an effective methods. You know, um, I remember a lot of people um, were really interested in how Jesse Norris was training when he first started to break into the scene. <laughs> I wasn't remotely interested in how he was training. Because when someone's 19 years old and pulls in the mid sevens, it's um, almost completely due to their genetics. Um, other than, of course, hard work, which I'm sure he put in, but that's not really a revelation to any. If, if, if it's a revelation to you that you have to work hard to get gains, you just think you're like seven years old or something. Um, but people are like, ooh, like with Jesse Norris, like I remember like saying, well, you know, this and this kind of training is a good idea, but with Jesse Norris does this and that. And I wanted to be like, I don't give a fuck, I don't give a shit. And if you give a shit, you're insane. I mean, Jesse Norris can be looked at for his um, you know, motivation, for his inspiration. And as he gets older, we, he's going to be learning, because he's a smart guy, he's going to be learning a lot of lessons. And we should stay tuned about his wisdom that he accrues, because he's going to be accruing a lot of it. And uh, you know, in his later years, when he's going to be like Ed Cohen, you know, Ed Cohen has a ton to teach. 
But can you, can you imagine if you were like, hey, I want to take a time machine to meet like 21-year-old you and ask you for training advice. You'd be like, don't fucking do that. Are you out of your mind? You'd be the first person to say that. Even if you wanted to meet my 21-year-old self, I'd be like, don't do that. I was doing hit, man. I was doing one set to failure. Like, so, you know, but people are like, but, but Jesse Norris, he's amazing. Like, I just wonder, do you really think he's amazing now because of his intelligence, because of what he's doing? I mean, you're out of your fucking mind. But some people just can never put those two together. Now, Jesse Norris continues to be the best and the best and the best for 10 years. At the end of that 10 years, he's going to have accrued some real, real deep wisdom. You know, like Andre Milanichev. I want to know what he's doing because he's like older and he's just been getting better for forever I mean, he was already good 20 years ago now he's amazing he's the best of all time so very curious about him but a lot of people just uh, you know they look and you know i'll put you this way i'll just, just end this with one last one one last note people pay boston lloyd for coaching and i think that really means something <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything good like i just want to meet the person that pays boston lloyd for coaching and be like I mean, what's wrong with you? You know, because there's so many other coaches that are so much more wise, have so much, so much, such a better track record with other competitors. And, you know, we like, well, he's not needle shy and he fucking does what it takes to take a lot of gear. Like, you think Honey Rambod is needle shy? He'll have you take the amount of drugs that, if it doesn't kill you, will make you Mr. Olympia. You better basically get to choose. Most of the guys, you know, uh, prep coaches will put you to choice to you. They'll say, listen, this is what it takes to be the best. We're going to ramp it up slowly and see if you don't die. And if you don't die, we'll give you more shit. Um, nobody's needle shy. There's like three coaches that are famous for underdosing people. Everyone else is famous for like doing at least as much as it takes. So if you're, you're looking for a guy who's going to give you a lot of gear, most prep coaches will do that anyway. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things like because people, because Boston Lloyd has a huge following, we know that this idea that everyone should pick the right coach and for their level of development, et cetera, is um, I wouldn't say a, a fool's hope, but it's one of those that we never can be surprised that people are making the wrong choice. No, yeah, totally. And I think the only way is someone from the outside in, like you'd hope, and that this just doesn't happen, is look at kind of their experience as a coach. Where have they got their clients' results? If they've got their clients' results and their clients are talking and being happy and they're legit clients, then you can kind of be rest assured they're probably a decent coach. Totally. And also uh, basically how the coach conducts themselves and how the coach posts about it. So for example, like there's multiple prep coaches that I follow that like um you know shelby starnes is a good example i mean i know from people that have worked with him or third parties etc but he's not gun shy about you know uh basically allowing his athletes to take higher end dosages if the task is at hand but he is also a person that does not some kind of like fetishize higher end dosage just like boston lloyd does and also he every other facebook post of his is about making sure you're healthy checking your health not doing anything stupid having a goal and always making sure you're healthy I mean, there's a guy who's thinking on both sides of the coin. You know what I mean? Um, I remember when I started working with Broderick, he was like, it's not that my goal with you is to keep you healthy in spite of everything we're doing. It is that health is a requirement for you to be your best because you cannot be your best if you're unhealthy. And I was like, holy shit, that blew my mind. Um, but if you're, you know, prep coach is like, you just got to take a ton, man, and fuck, live until you're 40. You're like, eh, you know, it might make you good. You're just going to die really soon. So hardcore bro mentality in its most like pervasive form it's just not a good thing and if you want to bet on it i got you know, you know I, I, good luck you probably won't have you probably won't have a lot of good luck doing that but 
I think we've covered that. Well, we've covered more than that question amply. So sure. um, we'll move on sure. to the next question, which is actually something um, I threw past you recently. And um, I think it's probably something that will benefit a lot of the listeners. And I hope it will anyway. And it was to do with um, whether or not, how you know whether or not you've got a high maximal recoverable volume or you just suck at actually activating a muscle group. So um, for myself, I found it was almost like calves, my abs, maybe my delts, kind of I could just continuously seemingly add sets and keep improving performance week on week. And it was like their MRVs were coming kind of into some stupid numbers. Um, and for me, I, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I assume I'm doing good form. I'm activating the muscle. Um, but they weren't necessarily really getting sore and they weren't kind of, I, hopefully they'll have actually responded and grown, but, um, I don't know. I don't want to just get into that junk volume trap. So I don't know if you have any thoughts or feelings on that sort of experience or if you've experienced yourself or with other people. Mm -hmm. So I actually think these are kind of two independent issues that can both be addressed at the same time. And it's not an either or scenario necessarily. So here's what I mean by that. So if you are recovering insofar as your performance continues to improve, uh, be it week to week, it's stable and month to month, it's improving, then you don't have to worry about muscle activation at all because um, whether or not you're activating your muscles is a very separate thing. We'll get to that in a second, but you're just clearly not overtraining or even overreaching and you're good to go. And if you continue to push the pace, continue to work towards finding your ceiling of volume, you will eventually find it. And then you will know what it is and it can be really high and that's okay. That just means you have to train a lot. Right? It's a good gift. Um, especially when some muscles are predominantly slow twitch, et cetera, and um, their architecture is such that it doesn't expose them to damage as much, then they have very high recovery volumes and they tend to do pretty well. So, uh, you know, and they do very well if you actually train them a lot. Um, now, if you are very bad at activating a certain muscle, then, oh, you guys want to say hi? Oh, Look here she is. Look at monster. Look at your monster. Hello. Oh my God, you're so unathletic. She's just going <laughs> to fall off the couch and off the couch you go. All right. That was a failed attempt. I have this like pillow ejection system for the dog when she climbs up to just get <laughs> rid of a pillow and off she goes. So uh, let's say that your maximum recoverable volume, uh, let's say you have trouble activating a certain body part. Let's say your side delts never quite um, you know, turn on as much as you'd want. You're not connected with them on a psychological and a mental level, and you're just not getting a lot of out of the exercises. How do you know if that's the case and if activation's a problem short of like doing a fine wire electrode test, right? First of all, your MRV is going to be kind of really, really high, but another couple of things will occur. Your shoulder joint will start to limit your volume weekly more than the actual side delt. Like, you know you're hitting the side delts really well when they're weak, they're fatigued, your shoulders feel fine, they don't hurt. Like the joint itself feels okay, but like your side delts are just weak and you're like, oh, clearly I'm over my MRV. Um, another sign is your traps get really sore and they're getting really big and getting a lot of growth, but your shoulders don't feel like dick. And basically those are the two big signs like supporting musculature is starting to really be a limiting factor and or is benefiting hugely 
but your targeted musculature is not benefiting much and or the target to be a limiting factor. So then you can work on a better mind-muscle connection, finding very isolation exercises where you feel the muscle a lot more, working on those more, especially pre-exhausting with those before you go on to compounds or other muscles that aren't as good or, or, or other exercises that aren't as good at um, activating uh, you know, the muscle. But when it's been pre-activated already, you're more in touch with it and it's pre-exhausted, so there's a better chance for activation. When that sort of thing happens, uh, when you do those sorts of tricks, slowly you'll begin to get in touch more with the muscle. And eventually, because every rep from then on is more taxing because you're using the muscle more, your MRV will start to fall. Once you become more in touch with your musculature, then your MRV is actually going to start to fall because rep for rep, you're getting more out of it and you're getting more stimulus and you're getting more damage, you're getting more fatigue. But that's not a bad thing because now you're doing more good work in less volume. So you actually your joints take less stress. So for example, like um, if I was to try to do half squats with really bad technique to hit my quads, that would be a disaster because I would fuck up my back and fuck up my knees way before my quads would get hit. But when, when I, because I've been, you know, perfecting my technique and squatting and leg pressing and all the stuff for so long, when people tell me like they don't feel it in their quads or they can't hit their quads, I'm like, holy shit, I got a couple things to teach you. And as soon as I teach them how to squat properly, leg press properly, they're like, what the fuck is happening to me? And they're like, I used to be able to do 10 sets of leg press. Like when someone says like, yeah, like I usually do like 20 sets of squats a week and like 10 sets of leg presses. I'm like, you know, that's the last week you're going to do that shit because after eight sets of each, you're going to be destroyed trying to the actual correct way where you're activating the proper muscles, doing a full range of motion, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's one of those things is how can you tell if your MRV is really high just genetically, or if you have activity problems, just forget about your MRV for a second and think about, are you having activation problems? Are your joints hurting before the target of muscle? Do you feel the target of muscle at all? There is something to the mind-muscle connection. Like if you feel your back on lat pull-downs, you're connected with it, it's probably getting hit. If you're like, I don't know, I'm like pulling with my arms, something's happening back there, I know what it is, eh, you might not be using your back as much as you think you are. You might be doing more pull-ups and then your, your biceps get fatigued before your back and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Does that make sense? So I would just attack those problems independently and the more you can attack activation, the better it'll be for your MRV. If you're already very good at activating your muscles, your MRV won't change much. But if you're really poor at activating some and you start to really work on activation really well, it's going to take, it's not, it's not an instant fix. It's going to take weeks and months. After months of getting the muscle, you know, getting better at the exercises, feeling the exercises more, you're going to do really well. Like uh, Al Alberto Nunez has like a whole tutorial on like how to do lat raises. Yeah. Uh, or with or lateral raises, it, it properly target the side delt. Like I've seen them, uh, I think they're fine. Um, I don't use his variations. Um, if people ask me about them, every time I post lateral raises, they're like, well, I don't use Alberto Nunez's method. And I'm like, because I don't have a goddamn single problem activating my fucking side delts. And my side delts are fucking enormous. It's the last thing I need to work on. And my, the way I do lateral raises, I feel my side delts on everything. People always ask me, like, don't you want to take your traps out of the movement? And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, because they take over. I'm like, um, you can't just take over. First of all, that's a misnomer. They'll add to the movement, but you'll still hit the other muscle. But I'm like, I, I, I do very little trap work because my traps do such a good job in lateral raises and upright rows. And like, well, what about your side delts? I'm like, I don't have a problem with side delts, right? So I can just use the main exercises. But if you have a big problem with side delts, you had better watch those Alberto videos. 
take a look at how he does his stuff and you may very well benefit from getting in touch with that. And later you can keep some of his tips for lateral raises. You know, he does it like a slight forward lean, much more slow and controlled and really just we're trying to feel out the muscle. And later you might just be able to do some of that stuff and do a lot of the regular good stuff that you were doing because once you caught on to what the muscle is doing, you're really in touch with it. Like there's not a single thing I can do for my legs in which I don't feel my quads. Like I'm just connected with my quads. Yes. Exactly what they're doing. It used to be that like, um, if I didn't have squats, like I could do a million leg presses and not feel a fucking thing in my quads. Now, if I can't squat for some reason, like I'm in a gym and there's no squat machine, I can fuck myself up so bad with leg presses. I can't even walk because in large part of I know exactly how to activate my quads and everything's going well. Mm -hmm. No, I think in fact, it's a part of technique almost development in that you should be consciously thinking about the mind muscle connection as well. And I certainly have found the more I've, focus not like wholly on it because I think you can get take it too far and I'm certainly I think you'd agree but um, when I really think about kind of doing a, a dumbbell fly for example on my chest I think about kind of what the actual muscle fibers are doing what the chest fibers like what I'm trying to actually kind of what actually happens there um, as a whole it just fires so much more and knowing having that basic understanding of the biomechanics of physiology I think is a, is a good thing to have as well. 100%. I think for a start, I don't take muscle activation claims seriously if I see the person's technique and it looks like shit. Like you see someone bent rowing and they're heaving weight and they're like, I don't feel my lats. I'm like, no fucking shit. I don't know how the fuck you're supposed to feel your lats doing that. Like, um, you know, it's got to at least, at least has to look the part. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, once, so, you know, once you at least look the part, but you still have trouble feeling the muscle. Now we have some challenges. Now it's time for some activation drills, for some modified exercises to really bring awareness to what's going on. But before that, you just need to clean up your technique. Um, and once you clean up your technique, a lot of that stuff, it's like, yeah. like I've, ta I've taught a bunch of people how to squat. And a bunch of people are like, I don't feel it in my quads. And I get them to properly high bar squat, push their knees out over their toes. And I'm like, do you feel your quads yet? And they're like, fuck. And I'm like, well, do you want any activation tips? They're like, no, good God. <laughs> Like I, sometimes I, I want to push my quads away from the movement so my back can do more work because I don't want my quads to be in such pain, right? Like the activation is too much. Like I know very well what my quads are doing and I don't want any more of it. So, you know, once you have good technique, then you can start talking. But a lot, I mean, it happens all the time in forums and Facebook. Someone will post, um, uh, you know, a video and say, hey, I'm really having trouble feeling my glutes in this exercise. Can you guys help me? And the, the, the technique is just uh, atrocious. And, and every, everyone's like, yeah, you need to do more glute bridges and do the side plank bullshit. And I'm like, hold the fuck up. Like, no, I'm sorry. You need to learn how to lift first. Once you learn how to lift, give it a couple of weeks. And if you're not feeling it, then you can do all that other stuff. Perfect. No, I think that really helps. I think, so for me personally, I think the, I think I can take more care in maybe trying to activate my calves and my uh, my abs sometimes. And I think part of it is they both just are those muscle groups that have high MRVs and I'm an individual who can take a lot of volume. Um, totally. Especially because I was doing the AM PM split and they were getting put in my uh, PM session. So they almost had a whole kind of uh, session for themselves. There you go. Sometimes that's uh, what it takes. Cool. So have we got time for maybe one more question, Mike? Yeah, or sure. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, let's jump to this one because I think it might be fairly short um, and I think it would be a good question to finish on. And they've asked, what are your thoughts on fructose? Um, how detrimental is it to health and physique goals? Um, and 
what dose does it start the negative impact start to occur um, and is it best avoided around workouts Broderick knows the dosing at which it should be avoided for fat gain. I don't know that number. Um, I think you just stick to mostly the right kind of foods. It doesn't really, it's not an issue. So there, I think there is something to the fructose thing. I'm not positive, but I think there is something to it for physique athletes to not consume way too much. I don't know the dose. Um, I think uh, keeping it away from a workout window is a good idea just because it's very low glycemic uh, for at least that reason. So I would say it's a good idea to keep more glucose-heavy carbs, uh, ones that metabolize quickly into glucose like starches. Um, I think that for health, there is not a single demonstrable negative health effect of fructose that I've ever seen. People who eat lots of fruit are healthier than everyone else, not the other way around. So I think the fructose and health thing is just uh, just whole cloth has been made up. There's a variety of like, God damn it, the shit pisses me off so much. But some fucking moronic health guru will just pick a fucking food and just attack it in a YouTube video that gets 13 million views because it's the answer. Like, it's what's wrong. Like, I just want all I want. I mean, this is as much to ask out of life is a fucking death match between insane vegans and crazy ass paleo motherfuckers that just fight each other to the death. Like there's paleo people that are convinced that if you have carbohydrate, especially if you eat grains and fructose, oh my God, forget about it. You're just going to die and be fat and just sick. And then there's vegans. Most vegans are cool, but there's this like rabid minority of them that are like, you know, if you have any amount of protein over like this minimum amount, if you have any meat, you're just literally just walking corpse. And they're so convinced of the, ra the, the veracity of their claims. It's just... um. It's just comical at this point. I think, you know, the, people ask, like, what do you think about fructose? I'm like, I think it's going to fucking kill you, man. And they're like, really? I'm like, no, you fucking idiot. Fuck. Like, yeah, apples are going to kill you, man. Apples and raspberries. You're dead. Like, those are the bad foods. It's just insane at this point. And, and people just keep looking for these one-off things. Like, is there a fructose level of bodybuilders should stay under? Yeah. Is it probably pretty high? Yeah, it's probably pretty high. Um, you can ask Broderick for it. Maybe post it in the show notes here. Yeah. Just, he, has, he has the figure offhand. So you just message him, post it in the show notes, and be like, Broderick knew. <laughs> Mike didn't know. Um, actually, don't make it my business to know these kinds of things because I think they're just uh, grossly misapplied. <laughs> So um, I probably any, should know that. But. Is there anything to, I've heard, um, I can't remember exactly what the theory behind it is, but kind of the combination of having some fructose with some other carbohydrates makes you uptake it faster or more effectively. Yeah. So like you run out of glucose receptors in the intestinal wall and fructose receptors are still open. So if you take a fructose glucose combo, you can get in more carbohydrate. That's very relevant to endurance athletes in very long races. It's not really relevant to most other people. It's certainly not relevant to like post-workout nutrition. Um, so it's one of those things like for endurance runners and, and cyclists, especially like if they're consuming a liquid during the race, you just more total energy coming in. If you do glucose fructose combo versus just glucose alone. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I guess like most things for bodybuilders, our nutrition is pretty boring and basic. We don't need to kind of mess around with these sort of things. So totally. Awesome. Um, I think we'll probably wrap it up there because I know you've got um another call to get to, and I think we've covered some really good stuff within this session. So again, I want to thank you, Mike, for coming on and uh sharing your wisdom and knowledge, although you didn't kind of completely answer that last question satisfactory but uh, we'll let you off on that one 
Um, and is there anything you want to let the listeners know? I know um, obviously the Volume Land Books um, book has been out for a while now. You've been having some great reviews. Anything else happening with RP Plus? The recovery, the recovery book should be out uh, hopefully within a week or two of this video release, uh, maybe even already. Cool. So, yeah. Um, and it, uh, the goal is kind of mid-December uh, is the optimistic goal. So it's already done. It's just an editing now, um, finalizing and stuff. So it's going to be a really, really, really great book. It's going to be a book that there's no book ever written like it. There's plenty of diet books. There's no comprehensive evidence-based but like uh not written for exclusively academics book on recovery um and this is going to be the first of its kind it's going to be really 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 good so that's going to be out also i um was featured on omar isuf's channel a couple of times recently and uh, a lot of the comments are like man i want to listen to this guy more and under each one of those is like you got to go to steve hall's channel because holy shit there's like thousands of hours of him oh amazing and it's great and the questions are great and uh people like find out they're like wow like i can't believe i've never discovered that steve hall's channel all stuff so uh you're getting a lot of views from that i think oh well that's amazing well i appreciate it and people do need to hear more from you mike so um more i don't know about that Um, and I'm excited for the recovery book because I know when James Hoffman came and presented all the recovery things back in the the first um, seminar that we got you guys over for it was amazing Um, so if there's more like it like that then uh, yeah totally and there's Recover. There's just so many myths with recovery. You know, there's as many myths and misprioritizations with recovery as there was with diet when we wrote the Renaissance Diet book. You know, um, I think now it's much more common knowledge in the evidence-based community, like between myself and uh, Eric Helms, Diet Pyramids, and mm-hmm. a variety of other people, that like the basics matter a lot and everything else doesn't matter much. I think in recovery that is just totally unknown at this point. Like people are like, you know, like you say, ask questions about recovery. And very few people ask questions about sleep. Most people ask questions. Nobody asks questions about relaxation. They just have no idea that it's almost as big as sleep as a factor. But everyone's like, what about like TENS unit? What about this massage stick? And you're like, Jesus Christ, this shit barely does anything at all. And it's one of those things that people think that the – remember like the nutrient timing stuff of like 2010, 2011? Like everyone thought it was fucking unbelievable. Next big thing. And uh, it's just nobody says that kind of stuff anymore uh, nearly as much. And hopefully we'll get to that point in a couple of years with recovery where people will at least be asking the right questions and have the general grand scheme of things now. No, oh, yeah, that's that's fantastic. I guess it's quite, not quite as sexy, but it's a it's a big part of, of physique development of your performance. So um, no, I think that will go down really well. So yeah, again, thank you. And uh, thank you guys, everyone for listening. And if we have got anyone from Omar's, Uh, channel then that's amazing Um, and uh, we'll catch you again soon